Hello, Strange Stories UK here, Series 2, Episode 21. This is Part 2 of the Nicholas Van Hoogstraten story. Please listen to Part 1. Um, so, without further ado. After Van Hoogstraten bought his estate at High Cross House in Sussex, it burnt down in 1983 and building, rebuilding began in 1985. There was a plan to build a palace intending to house a huge uh, art collection, but it was in effect a huge mausoleum, thought to be some sort of tax dodge, as a trust would be allowed to exist in perpetuity in order to maintain the building. Van Hoogstraten had secretly been buying up parts of Uckfield, the nearby market town about a mile away. A number of Van Hoogstraten's gang lived at the High Cross estate in tied cottages. This included Robert Knapp, the minder that he'd got to know in prison and whose parents were given one of the great and favour cottages. Another minder was Andrew Emmanuel, who had been a friend since the 1960s. The community of friends that lived at High Cross referred to it as the Funny Farm. Van Hoogstraten often lived there in a three-bedroom cottage on the estate. An acquaintance at the time was Mohammed Sabir Raja, a slum landlord who had come to Britain to make his fortune from Pakistan. He came to Brighton in 1962, then aged 25, to do a course in business, and by 1967 had saved enough to buy a house in Lorna Road, Brighton. After this, he began to build up a portfolio of bedsits, crowding in as many tenants as possible. In 1976, he was criticised for housing 16 tenants in a terrace property in Hove. He was also fined for trying to bribe council officials. Raja said that it was a misunderstanding, as he was not used to dealing in the English way. Eventually, he managed to be given over to 100 convictions for health and safety violations. In 1989, the Brighton Argus newspaper called him the worst landlord in Britain. Raja claimed that tenants that he had were on the dole, and they did nothing but fight and damage his properties. He said it's the local people that did this. There are no foreigners in his houses. Raja had many enemies. He credited Van Hoogstraten for teaching him how to maximise profits. They'd known each other since the early 1980s. Raja would go to Van Hoogstraten for loans, as he lent at a lower rate than the banks, and working together they managed to avoid taxes. One of the tricks that Van Hoogstraten taught Raja was a way of avoiding paying debts. His old trick was to have a company to run up debts, then transfer all of its assets out of the company, and then declare that company bankrupt. Another trick was to buy freehold properties, then squeeze the leaseholders by imposing high management charges so that some people who could not keep up their mortgages would default. Their flats would be repossessed, and at this point Van Hoogstraten's men would get into the flat and vandalise them so they could be unsellable. As a freeholder, Van Hoogstraten would make a, an offer for the flat, and then get them for knockdown, for knockdown price. 
Van Hoogstraten's mentor, Bill Bajot, died in September 1993. Van Hoogstraten went to the two houses where Bill lived in Cumberland Road, Acton, as he was convinced that he'd hidden away things. The place was taken apart. Van Hoogstraten was present at all times. He didn't trust those he employed to help. Gold coins were found. No one knows how many. Also antiques. Bajup was thought to own hundreds of houses, had nominated Hoogstraten to put up his estate for probate. In June 1994, probate claimed that the value of the estate was less than £10,000. Probate went through without any problem. There were no death duties. Van Hoogstraten was thought to have been an expert in dealing with financial matters and seemed to have acquired Bajot's fortune without paying any taxes on it. Mohammed Raja had acquired about a dozen properties with loans provided by Van Hoogstraten. Each month Van Hoogstraten would inform Raja what he owed, what he owed in interest and capital repayments, and it would be paid sometimes in cash. Outwardly, relations were amicable, but it seemed the truth was that it was mutually a suspicious relationship. Their method of business was so informal as to ensure that there was no taxation on any of their dealings. It was mutually convenient. The relationships quickly soured when the housing bubble burst around 1989. House sales plummeted and prices crashed. Van Hoogstraten had seen the warning signs and avoided difficulty. But Mohammed Raja found himself in a financial difficulty and in desperation he got a Bradford and Bingley mortgage on a house that he had effectively already mortgaged with Van Hoogstraten. Raja was asset rich but cash poor. When Van Hoogstraten found out that a mortgage had been taken out on a property he was still owed, he demanded Raja give him the deeds to other properties he owed as security. He was also given signed blank property transfer forms. Raja could not keep up the payments, so Van Hoogstraten repossessed several of his properties. Raja asked for a breakdown of borrowings and repayments, but Van Hoogstraten refused to put the details on paper. He would only give the final figure owing, which he claimed was £300,000, a figure that Raja refuted. Van Hoogstraten already put anything on paper, as was his relationship with Raja. Raja went to the High Court in October 1993, claiming a breach of trust, and demanded the return of property deeds from Van Hoogstraten, claiming that the blank transfer forms had been used fraudulently to take properties from him. Van Hoogstraten, meanwhile, changed the locks on the properties, telling tenants that Raja had gone bankrupt and their new landlord was now Robert Gates & Co. Raja, meanwhile, demanded an injunction preventing Van Hoogstraten from interfering with his properties and sending him threats. In 1996, Van Hoogstraten tried to get Bradford and Bingley to take action against Raja, offering to pay the building society costs for doing so. Raja tried to get the Sussex police to take action against Van Hoogstraten and tried to get a solicitor in Sussex to fight Van Hoogstraten on his behalf. But he was turned down by all, as Van Hoogstraten was too much trouble to get involved with. 
Also, another part of Raja's problem was not many people were sympathetic to him, as he tended not to give full facts and was often difficult to believe. He was described as a slippery customer. Eventually, Raja found a solicitor to take on his case and applied to the High Court to try to have fraud charges made against Van Hoogstraten. Meanwhile, there was another case against Van Hoogstraten, brought about by a barrister that had represented him. Michael Kennedy, who Van Hoogstraten seemed to have cheated out of £350,000, and who was fighting an acrimonious case against him, which froze £350,000 of Van Hoogstraten's assets. In 1998, just as the case was to be decided in court, Van Hoogstraten invited Kennedy out for dinner. In an out-of-court settlement was reached. It seemed that Van Hoogstraten knew he was in the wrong and would not win the case. Part of the settlement being that Kennedy received the farm in Zimbabwe. However, within the year, the ZANU PF had taken over the farm, and it was suggested that Van Hoogstraten had told those in Zimbabwe that he knew that the farm could be taken. The Raja case was advancing, and on the 22nd of April 1999, the High Court agrees for Raja to amend the claims against Van Hoogstraten to that of conspiracy to defraud. Raja was now suggesting that he was owed three million pounds. It was the 2nd of July 1999, at Raja's home at 63 Mulgave Road, Sutton, near London, he answered the door to two attackers and was stabbed five times and shot. Raja's grandsons were home at the time, Rizvan and Vahid, but they were unable to protect their grandfather. The attackers drove off, torched the van they arrived in about a mile away, where it's thought their accomplices were waiting with another vehicle with an easy access to the M25 motorway. It was murder. The police investigation team were determined to catch the perpetrators and carefully searched the murder scene. Forensic tests came back showing that blood samples at the property were all from Raja, save a tiny amount from another person found at the edge of a door, which must have come from one of the killers. Raja's family were questioned over who might have wanted to commit murder and learnt there were a number of people that Raja had disputes with all over the country, all over property, money or both. One of the grandsons, Rizvan, said that as he was being attacked, his grandfather had shouted in Punjabi that it was Van Hoogstraten's men attacking him. Also, the grandsons had been warned to be careful when answering the door, to look through the window first to see who was calling. As the police investigated several lines of inquiry, Detective Constable Hugh Ellis was given the task of investigating Van Hoogstraten and he talked to police in Uckfield and Brighton about possible suspects. One name that came up was Robert Knapp. What troubled the police was that the hit on Raj was so badly planned and organised, it was not a professional hit. A professional hit would be where the victim would be approached in an accessible place such as a street, shot at point-blank range, while the killer would make a swift getaway on the back of a motorcycle, driven by an accomplice. If Van Hoogstraten had organised the hit, surely he would have had the contacts, the means and the funds to have a professional hit, rather than a hit on Raja, where the attackers turned up in disguises, used an unsuitable shotgun, 
had a struggle with the victim in his own home, then making their getaway in a distinctive Fawn Transit van with a sign Thunderbirds 2 written large above the driver's cab. There were also a number of witnesses. A professional hit would have been at a would also distance the person who ordered the hit away from any killer. It didn't make sense to the police if Van Hoogstraten was involved. He was usually so careful. So why would he be involved in such a slipshod attempt to silence Raja? The police continued searching the Van Hoogstraten links, looking at Knapp's associates, and came up with more potential suspects, including David Croak, another violent criminal who, like Knapp, had recently left prison. There were no real breaks in the case, and the murder was featured on the October 1999 Crime Watch BBC TV programme, which was available on YouTube and is filmed at the murder scene. The Rajas were putting pressure on the police, phoning on a regular basis for updates. Chief Inspector Dick Helsenden was now in charge of the case, and he decided to invite in Van Hoogstraten for questioning on a fishing expedition. Would Van Hoogstraten give anything away if he was involved? Van Struggen, as it turned out, was happy to help the police and told them the story as he understood it. He suggested that Raja may have been in trouble with the traditional Muslim bankers who had been borrowing from. Lawi bankers, who operate a system based on trust and honour, but is illegal. Continuing his interview, Van Hoogstraten suggested that Raja could have been hit by so many different people, as he had so many enemies. Van Hoogstraten discussed the recent Crime Watch programme with detectives and joked about the incompetence of the killers. Although detectives were later suspicious of his knowledge of the killing. Police started to make some headway in the case. On checking mobile phone records, it seemed that Knappin Croak spoke daily, weeks before the murder. But on the actual day of the murder, all calls stopped. Police were speaking uh, to contacts of Van Hoogstraten, wearing hidden microphones to try to gather intelligence. On the 23rd of February 2001, the police discovered that the blood on Raja's door matched that of Croak. He was arrested at his home in Bolney Road, Molscombe Estate, Brighton, for the murder of Mohammed Raja. Croak refused to talk to the police. Although there was no real link between Van Hoogstraten and Croak, the police arrested Van Hoogstraten on the 16th of July, hoping he would make a mistake when being questioned. They also searched the cottage he was living at, High Cross Estate. Van Hoogstraten gave nothing away and was released, but arrested again on the 24th of September 2001. He was charged with murder and given bail at £23 million. It seemed that the police had little evidence. They were trying to rattle Van Hoogstraten. The case against him was wholly circumstantial. The police had arrested Knapp and Croak and charged them along with Van Hoogstraten of the murder of Raja. The police thought they had a couple of witnesses to testify against Van Hoogstraten. A Lebanese businessman who he had fallen out with, called Hamden, and Tanaka Sally, a much younger girlfriend who Van Hoogstraten had recently fallen out with. The trial was set for the 16th of April 2002 at court number one, the Old Bailey. The judge was Justice Newman. 
He was a replacement for the intended judge who had been threatened by Van Hoogstraten ten years earlier. David Waters was the prosecution barrister and Richard Ferguson was the defence barrister. For the first two days, the prosecution outlined the case against the accused and it was suggested that Van Hoogstraten had ordered the contract killing against Raja because of problems and difficulties that he had caused. Links were made between the three defendants and the defence of the day were carefully gone through. Although everything seemed to fit together, it was all circumstantial apart from a blood spot linking Croak to the crime scene, and even this was open to challenge by the defence, as the blood spot was so minute that it had all been used up by prosecution scientists before defence experts could conduct their own tests. In such circumstances, it was expected by the defence to be ruled inadmissible evidence. As the case progressed, the prosecution made little headway. Witnesses said that the men who did the hit were all aged between 18 and 40. Croak and Nat did not fit with such a description, and the EFIP images looked nothing like them. The prosecution witnesses were ineffective. Hamden had fled to Beirut and wanting nothing to do with the trial. Despite, then, despite his lawyers advising him not to, Van Hoogstraten decided to give evidence. His lawyers predicted that the prosecution would annoy him and he would lose control, which is pretty much what happened, and his past record came out in court which showed his violent and ruthless nature. It was thought that this performance in the witness box cost him the trial. The jury were out for five days. They were discussing Van Hoogstraten's involvement as they had no trouble finding Croak and Knapp guilty of murder. They eventually found Van Hoogstraten guilty of manslaughter. Croak and Knapp got life sentences. Van Hoogstraten was, was waiting for reports until he was sentenced. The media celebrated with the jailing of what they called the Devil's Landlord. The local newspaper, the Brighton Argus, which is like a local tabloid, made a supplement and headlined, Goodbye and Good Riddance. The Sun newspaper called him the Maniac and Mink, as he had recently taken to wearing mink coats. The press enjoyed ridiculing him and telling his violent past as they saw it. Van Hoogstraten hired a lawyer, Giovanni de Stefano, who was known as the Devil's Advocate. He had a reputation for finding mistakes that the Crown prosecution may have made so he could overturn the conviction. A rather pathetic attempt was made by the prison authorities to stop De Stefano's visits, but they were soon pushed aside by the lawyer, who told Van Hoogstraten that the judge had misdirected the jury and the conviction could be overturned. Before sentencing, an appeal was launched, and a letter was written to Judge Newman from Van Hoogstraten, which described as forthright and direct and a letter to the prosecution barrister was said to be abusive. Van Hoogstraat was fighting mad and said his enemies would have shit on their faces when the wrongful conviction was overturned. Sentencing was on the 25th of October 2002. The judge said that Van Hoogstraat was almost self-delusional and incapable of accepting responsibility for anything. His conduct was appalling and he always believed he was in the right. Van Hoogstraat was sentenced to 10 years. 
and he was ordered by the courts to disclose his assets. Van Hoogstraat was said to be worth about £500 million at the time, although he had just admitted to a few million. The judge Peter Smith said this was nonsense and fined him £200,000 for defying the court and £50,000 for each week he continued to do so. Van Hoogstraten also had to pay the Raja family £5 million. Van Hoogstraten clearly did not accept the ruling, and his appeal started in spring 2003, and it was successful. Judge Newman's summing up at the original trial was said to have been to have misled the jury, as he had not mentioned the fact that the killers carried a gun. My understanding is that Van Hoogstraten was convicted of manslaughter, but to be guilty he should have been convicted of murder, as the killers had a gun. Manslaughter was not an option if Van Hoogstraten knew the killers had a gun. The judge had not mentioned the gun in his summing up, and it was not made clear that manslaughter was not an option. He should have not been found guilty of manslaughter. This may not be correct, but it's what I understand. It was said at the time of the appeal hearing that most of the journalists were lost in the complexity of the case. Another interpretation is that Van Hoogstraten may have paid Knapp and Croak to frighten or injure Raja, but he could not have foreseen that Raja would have been killed, therefore was not guilty of manslaughter. Even now the decision is not easily understood. Van Hoogstraten now faced a retrial. Bell was requested by the defence, but was refused to worries that the witnesses could be persuaded to tell different stories. A retrial was set for February 2004, but it was abandoned as a result of the vilification of Van Hoogstraten in the press, which could not ensure a fair trial. So, Dece- December 2003, Van Hoogstraten was a free man. The media were incensed, saying the law is an arse. The law was facing a crisis of confidence. It was a mockery of justice and similar. After release, Van Hoogstraten spent the first six months trying to sort out his Zimbabwe assets. As people thought, as he was locked up for ten years, his interest had been picked over. Van, Van Hoogstraten had to try to regain his assets. By 2004, Van Hoogstraten had overturned other actions against him in the UK. The question of his property worldwide, the £1 million in fines and the award of £5 million to the Rajas were all rescinded. The case then went back to High Court for a new hearing and on the 19th of December 2005, Mr Justice Lightman ruled that on the balance of probability Hugh Stratton was involved in the death of Raja and ordered him to pay an interim award of half a million pound within 14 days. Van Hoogstraten did not even bother to attend the case, and of course never paid a penny. Van Hoogstraten gave an interview to the Sunday Telegraph, which showed how bitter he felt against his treatment, saying that he hopes the police and judges that conspired against him or their families don't go to Zimbabwe or South Africa, as he has friends there who will make sure that they never come home. The mausoleum that was being built at High Cross stopped when Van Hoogstraten was taken to jail. It will probably never be finished, as it's probably too expensive, and Van Hoogstraten seems to have lost interest in it. The story was that a fortune told, teller told Van Hoogstraten that he would live in a marble palace on a hill, 
and Arthur van Hoogstraten saw High Cross House, he decided that would be the place. The objective was to build a palace that looked like the Palace of Fontainebleau in France. It was to be 600 feet long and two storeys, and there were frescoes on the ceilings and tapestries on the walls. It was to be the largest private residence built in over a century in the UK. The style was said to be English Baroque. Think of St Paul's Cathedral. The announcement of it being built was generally sneered at in the media. The Brighton Argus, true to form, called it Hoogstraten's Toad Hall. More objective criticism thought it was interesting and staggering in proportion. The mausoleum was to be built of thick concrete, designed to last 2,000 years. On his death, the intention was the body would be entombed, along with his collection of art, and the building, the palace, or the mausoleum, would be closed up and sealed. There was to be a trust main to maintain the building, and I would imagine to make sure it stayed secure. People were not sure whether to take Van Hoogstraten seriously, or take it as a huge joke. Van Hoogstraten said in 1997 that it started as a joke, but thinking about it, he said he didn't want to be cremated, and he didn't like the idea of being in somebody else's ground when he, bur when he was buried. Because if you bought a plot, they can come along 50 years later, dig you up and turn the land over to a housing estate. So Van Hoogstraten said that the safest thing would be to bury, be buried on your own land, inside a building that cannot be destroyed. And he liked the idea of some kind of memorial. I don't think any work's been carried out on the building since 2000. When I last saw it, parts of the building were open to the elements being held up with steel props. Van Hoogstraten still owns local building companies, hundreds of thousands of pounds for the work they carried out. They were advised that it would be impossible to force Van Hoogstraten to pay due to his devious tactics. There is a copper dome roof which would have a high scrap value, but locals claim that it's safe as nobody would dare steal it, being too frightened as the consequences in case Mr Van Hoogstraten found out who it was. I've never had any dealings with Van Hoogstraten myself, although I did walk through the grounds of the High Cross estate when he had a dispute with the Ramblers Association after he blocked the right of way and blocked the path with razor wire and huge freezers. The Ramblers Association organised a walk across the land. I couldn't make the agreed times so and turned up later and completed the walk, although a friend I was with stalled at the last moment and waited near the freezers. The same friend was watching a court case involving Van Hoogstraat at Hove Crown Court when a couple of heavies came in and sat either side of him, just staring at him until he left. That's all I know about Van Hoogstraten. I've never seen him in Brighton and Hove, although everyone in Brighton knew of him in the 1980s and 1990s. The Ramblers Association fought Van Hoogstraten for three years to force him to open the footpath he'd blocked. Local council could not afford to fight the case and the police refused to get involved. But Kate Ashbrook, of the Ramblers Association was determined to do what was necessary to get the path reinstated. The Ramblers Association won the case. Van Hoogstraten faced fines and costs of almost £100,000. But then it appeared that the land actually belonged to a shadowy company, which then went into liquidation, so no money was ever paid, although the footpath was eventually cleared in 2003. 
In 2012, Van Hoogstraten claimed his bully days were over, and maybe he had been a bit harsh in the past. But it was normal back then, he claimed. The tenants he had to deal with were often very difficult. Now all of his properties were managed professionally. He said he can't remember the last time he had a problem with a tenant. Van Hoogstraten said there are now landlords in Brighton and Hove who would do anything to get rid of a problem. Buy-to-let landlords were often bullies, threatening eviction because either they want to put the rent up or move relatives in. Van Hoogstraten said he knows of cases where the landlord has tried to get sexual favours out of a tenant. There's not much a tenant can do. Van Hoogstraten blamed the rise of the rogue landlord on the number of owners renting out their properties and the buy-to-let landlords in many cases that borrowed too much and are now desperate to increase their renting income. Demand for housing far upstrips the number of properties available and tenants say their landlords now threaten them with eviction if they complain. The problem with rogue landlords is far from over. I'd like to add my experience here of being a landlord in Brighton. It was 1996 and I was about to get married and hopefully start a family. It was a time when it was impossible to sell a property in the middle of a time of equity for property. I had a Regency flat in Brighton, but I could not sell it for what I paid for it. Then a scheme was put into place whereby you could buy a house and keep the flat if you followed the demands of the building society, going through a recommended letting agency decided by the building society, which I think was Alliance Leicester. I did everything by the book and bought a property in a village in the Downs. The flat was let, but I never received any rent. I complained to the letting agents who said that they were doing all they could. I went to see the tenant, who said his Alsatian dog on me. There was a fight and the furniture was smashed. He said he was calling the police, but he never did. I went back later when I found no one home. I broke into it, the flat, because I knew the weak points. I later found a letter addressed to the tenant, who I will name as Andrew Arnott, who had his previous address... The letter was from a letting agents warning him that he needed to pay his rent. So the letting agents knew that he was a bad tenant. He was dumped on me. I found out later that he'd been diagnosed with AIDS and he seemed to have gone off the rails. It seemed that his previous address was with a large Brighton landlord. Could it have been Van Hoogstraten? And the letting agents wanted to solve the problem by pushing the problem onto a reluctant small landlord, me, who didn't really matter. They didn't allow for the fact that I would break into the flat and find the letter they'd sent to Arnott. So I can say that the letting business in Brighton is a dirty game. I managed to get my costs back, although when I eventually got my flat back it had been wrecked. I also made some inquiries and it was suggested that Arnott had murdered previous lovers by giving them drug overdoses and dumping the bodies after he discovered he was HIV positive. I don't know for sure if this was true, but I was convinced that he was capable of such an act. Arnott left a lot of stuff behind in the flat, which I burnt, but it seemed that his father was a Spitfire pilot during World War II. Andrew Arnott left a number of photographs that left no doubt that he was part of the Brighton gay scene of the 1990s. My experience of letting him Brighton put me off being a landlord forever. But I will also say that I've been a tenant and never had any problems with the landlords in Brighton. The latest entry I can find in the press is an article in the Brighton August about Van Hoogstraten from August 2019, 
reporting of how Van Hoogstraten called a police officer a pufter in a row after a car clamping incident. It seems that Van Hoogstraten's son had an argument with PC Breeds, calling him Mad Max. And then the, uh, the PC is supposed to have manhandled him. Van Hoogstraten became involved and the words pufter was used. Possibly to ask if PC Breeds was a pufter. It was not entirely clean what happened, uh, and it seemed to be sufficient for Van Hoogstraten and his son to be arrested. It seemed a bit weak, as I have seen people throwing bottles on the main shopping street in Brighton, swearing, saying all sorts of offensive things, and the police just seem to move them on. They do whatever they can not to arrest them. So either Van Hoogstraten is a target for the police, or he's just an easy arrest. Van Hoogstraten and his son were cleared by the magistrates of causing harassment, alarm or distress. Van Hoogstraten called the proceedings laughable, a waste of public money, and asking since, when has the term pufter ever been offensive? The newspaper goes on to use the incident as an excuse to give the history into the 75-year-old Van Hoogstraten. Van Hoogstraten is the father of at least six children, his eldest born in 1983 is Rat, Rhett, I beg your pardon, Maximilian van Hoogstraten. His children also include Alexandra, Britannia and Ori, all who work for companies started by van Hoogstraten. Van Hoogstraten is not a conventional person and his private life is complicated. He calls himself a single man with a number of girlfriends, all who know about each other. He said he would not sport his children and give them, and give them nothing but he seems to have provided trusts for them, and they're all well-educated. All the women that Van Hoogstraten had children with are of African origin and have strong personalities which they need to have in order to stand up to Van Hoogstraten. Caroline Williams has known Van Hoogstraten since the early 1980s, and she in particular has proved a great asset running various companies, always standing by him. There's a BBC documentary available on YouTube where she describes her meeting with Van Hoogstraten for the first time. She said she thought, Who the F does he think he is? As he seemed so arrogant, but she fell for his charm and had two children with him. There is an amusing in interview I found online from 2006 when Van Hoogstraten is interviewed by Lynn Barber. She said that Van Hoogstraten is entertaining company when he's not droning on about judges or how society is going to the dogs. He's witty if you don't mind macabre jokes about Hitman, and he's able to take jokes about himself. During the interview, Van Hoogstraten claims that he no longer owns any properties. He's had to live off £2,000 a week living expensive expenses and handouts from friends and family. His money has all been put in trust and given away to his children. He said that his children are all embarrassed by him turning up at their posh public schools in a rust bucket and has since bought him a new car. He also talks about his wristwatch and metal bracelet Seiko. He claimed that it cost him £4. Normally they are £160, but he bought 100 for them, of them for 400 to give to his senior workers in Zimbabwe, thus making them £4 each. Van Hoogstraten goes on to explain he is no longer interested in spending money. He did that when he was young, having the flash clothes and flash cars. Regarding his arguments with the Ramblers Association, 
He says that public footpaths should not exist on private land, as they were for serfs to walk from A to B. They weren't for the public. Prior to 1700, no one had any rights. They were all slaves. Regarding his wealth, he said that he's hardly worth anything. Everything's now in trusts. The trusts are set up for various causes, including one that pays for education in Zimbabwe. Regarding his family, he said that his partners and children all get on well, spending Christmas and birthdays together. He says that if it wasn't for his children, he would probably live in Zimbabwe. It should be mentioned that Van Hoogstraten has homes in Cannes, Cap Ferret in the south of France, Barbados, Brighton, Bermuda and Zimbabwe. Well, so concludes Van Hoogstraten Part 2. I would thank everybody uh, for listening and uh, thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And until next time, I'd like to say goodbye. Thank you and goodbye.